you know, I grew up a lot that year that, that, uh, 92. Yeah. Um, cause he was, he was, he was in the hospital or wherever battling that. And yeah. like you said, middle harvest, this is the real food, real people podcast. So this week's episode actually got a little bit personal for me, talking with a wheat farmer who farms in eastern Washington and into Idaho because he didn't always farm there. He grew up not far from where I grew up. I knew him as a kid. He was a bit older than me, and he farmed and worked for my uncle. But there's kind of a difficult part of that story, and we get into that when we discuss it and catch up after years of not seeing each other. Dwayne Lenson is his name. He grows wheat and lentils and barley in the rolling hills of the Palouse, scenic country in eastern Washington. We go there to visit with him right in the offices of the little co-op that he produces grain for the, the Palouse grain growers. Great conversation and really educational as well as far as how wheat is grown and and how farming happens in the Palouse. Um, It's different than a lot of other places and and where that food ends up and who consumes it is different too. It goes all over the world. So we talk about all of it this week with Dwayne Lenson in Palouse, Washington. Our sponsors here on the Real Food, Real People podcast are Mana Insurance Group, Uh, You can find them online, manainsurancegroup.com, helping you plan to protect your financial future. If you think about it, that's what insurance is really about, that you're not devastated financially by something in some realm, health, you know, with your car, with your home, et cetera, et cetera, that could devastate you financially. They'll take care of that there. They have an awesome team. I've known those folks, a lot of them personally for a long time. Manainsurancegroup.com. Also, Dairy Farmers of Washington supporting this podcast, doing a great job over at wadairy.org, sharing the real stories of the dairy food, the the products that are produced here in Washington State. Our dairy farmers do an excellent job and they produce amazing food here. And that's what Dairy Farmers Washington is all about, letting people know about that and sharing those real stories. Again, wadairy.org is their website. Go check it out. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. I'm Dylan Honkoop, and this is documenting my continuing journey all over Washington State to get to know the real food, real people behind the food that we produce here in Washington State. So you're an Eastern Washington and Idaho wheat farmer. Yes, here, right? in, here in the Palouse. But you didn't start that way. No, I did not. You're from originally from the west side, like me. Yeah, I grew up in the Linden. So wh- talk about what you do now as far as the food that you grow that people eat. So I am a basically sole proprietor, but, you know, single operator of, the, of a wheat farm. And I raise soft white wheat, uh, both fall wheat and spring wheat. There's a little difference there, but very similar. And I also raise spring barley. I raise spring uh, spring green peas, lentils, and garbanzos. Different varieties and different uh, different products there. So where do the where does this food end up? Does it get shipped all over the world, kind of deal? Or I know a lot of the wheat, and we talked about this with Riley Hilly mm-hmm. here on the podcast. I think last season, right? A lot of the wheat that's produced here in Washington goes overseas to Asia. Right. So soft white wheat is just here in the P&W, 80 to, well, at least 
in the Palouse region, 80 to 90% is exported to Pacific Rim countries. So the Philippines, Taiwan, Japan, hmm. um, the, the big wild card is China. They are not consistently in the market. You know, they're looking for the best deals. So sometimes we're overpriced and sometimes they they don't produce enough themselves. So China's is a big swing market for us, but the consistent ones are Taiwan, Japan, Philippines, and we have uh, trade negotiations, you know, trying to develop trade throughout the world. Yeah. Uh, South America is becoming a, a bigger portion, mm. portion of our of our market as well. So why does the wheat from here go there? Does that dip, Is that because of the different kinds of food that it's used for? Yes. Uh, our soft white wheat is not not bread wheat it doesn't rise mm. it's not used for bread loaves of bread it's more for crackers pancakes uh pastries in and japan has some really specialized uh products that, yeah. they, that they don't need it to rise right um and they prefer the lower protein and and they also with our wheat they can they can they get actually more percentage higher percentage of flour from milling it just because of the variety and and it also it's white wheat so it it's uh it's a whiter flour they don't have to bleach it like you do yeah. with your your typical bread loaf bread bread wheats what about noodles noodles yes you know, there's so many asian cuisines yeah. that involves noodles of some kind more than traditional right. american food so typically american noodles are made out of durham wheat which right. is raised in canada north and south dakota montana area that's a very hard wheat where the Asian noodles are softer. And yes, I don't, I don't know all the specifics on, on types of noodles, but yeah, yeah, that's a big, a big market as well. So why is that all grown here then too? It has to do with climate and soils and stuff. Yes. Right. Uh, in Washington with, specifically. With, with our climate in this region, we have low humidity in the summer. We have in certain areas, we have higher pre- precipitation. And so it, it, it just fits our climate better um whereas the red wheats are raised in drier hotter uh climates you know in the south south central u.s yeah north north, northern plains um and then with our export markets we're obviously closer to the pacific ocean so we have a a freight advantage versus europe or russia to the to the asian countries so our our main competition is obviously Canada and mm. uh, Australia a little bit dependent mm. dependent on the on the markets and and the timing you know of the, when the crops are harvested. So so how do you go about growing wheat and specifically this kind of wheat, soft white wheat? <clears throat> well, it's I mean I'm I'm what you would call a conventional farmer. So I till the soil. Mm-hmm. I I I use fertilizer and, and herbicides to maintain the the fertility and and control the the pests and the weeds and and what might present themselves in a growing season yeah. so um yeah there, there's a lot in in into it but uh we we have what we call winter wheat which is planted in the fall which i just finished up planting in mm. in october so that plant needs to germinate this month yeah get up we prefer about two to four leaf size so it's not very big but it needs to vernalize it needs that cold temperatures through the winter to stimulate it to produce oh really so winter wheat actually needs the cold it's not yes. just that it can stand the well, cold it needs a certain it. amount of cold okay um now depending on the on the year and the and the climate and and whatnot um it, it can all we, we can still have winter kill it, it can still die during the winter if it's 
say we get 20 degrees and we get the 40 mile an hour wind, you know, say mm-hmm. like a northeaster type of thing. Yeah. It can dehydrate that plant and kill it. It could create freezing in the ground and it could heave up and damage the roots and it doesn't survive come springtime. So, so yeah, winter wheat needs that vernalization is what, what the technical term is. So it needs, mm. that stimulates. And so winter wheat will produce more because it's, it's already got a jump start. It's pr- putting down roots here and you know, before it gets too cold this fall. And then when it re when it reactivate uh, starts growing again in the spring, it's already starting to grow right. where we can't get in the fields and plant the spring wheat until you typically April. So why don't you do all winter wheat? What's the reason for the, the diff? So, the two difference? so we, we do a rotation. So my typical rotation is a third of my acres are in winter wheat. A third of the acres are either in spring wheat or spring barley. Mm. And a third of the acres are in pulses or legumes. Mm. And, and so I spread my risk crop wise by having a third of my acres in each different type of crop in case one of them fails yes. based on whatever Mar- market market fluctuations well, yeah. uh droughts like we had this year yeah. um and then also my workload so i can get some a third of my acres planted in the fall and so i don't have to try to plant them all in the spring and so so you wouldn't have time yeah. in the spring to plant you everything would, in the spring or would, fall vice versa you would have time but it wouldn't be as timely that's that's a big thing is yeah. you know when, when the weather conditions are right, you go, go, go in the spring and, and, and get, yeah. it, get it in because it's uh, economically a, a benefit to, yeah. to do it that way. So so when you're out there and you probably have to work the dirt, like you said, then you go in and put the seed in mm-hmm. with a grain drill. Yeah. Are you thinking about the people who are going to eat that someday? I mean, it's amazing if you think about it. It depends on... If you just check the markets that day, you know, and <laughs> seeing if you need to market some crop and, and yeah. who, who might be buying or, or which country might be tendering is, is what they call it when they tender in the, in the export markets in Portland or which country is coming in this week to tender, you know, and they might fluctuate, you know, affect the market, you know, mm. so you, you think about which countries. Yeah, how, do you, how do you know what the price is? Like, where does that come from? Well, it's, it's, it's quite complicated. Um, being being soft white wheat it's a it's it's a minor crop so it's 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 based out of portland price so we we typically see the portland price well we're 370 miles away from portland Mm -hmm. so then you gotta talk to your local elevator and you get you pay to freight it there basically Mm -hmm. so when we talk today the 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 soft white wheat market is ten dollars and sixty cents a bushel that's in portland Mm -hmm. so we're our we're already 84 or 85 cents off coast mm. price. We call the Portland price coast price. So depending on where you're at in the state, if you're farming in Oregon, that you're only 200 miles away, you don't have to pay as much freight to get it down the river to Portland export market. If you're in Montana, you're paying well over a dollar to rail it mm. to get it to Portland if it's an ex- export market. So. Which at the price that you just named, that's like 10% yes, and additional markup and so right now it's 1060 a year ago at this time it was 535 a bushel and if you calculate inflation that was pro- that's probably less than what they were raising it for 30 or 40 years ago it, it's it's amazing so that's got to be what below break even i mean that's losing money kind of price or can you still i i guess you adjust what you do if the price right, is that low. right it, it depends on the market it depends on your your each individual operation um you know whether if everything's average, it might it might be below at, below break even. So 
that's why we raise some legumes. Sometimes they they carry the you know, <laughs> they they provide the yeah. rev, the income that year because there's a good market there or or vice versa. Yeah. That's also why you got to save your money on the good years. Yes, yeah, some yeah. of those bad years. Yep, the banker's your best friend, and and <laughs> <laughs> there you you need a good banker to uh, to help you through your business yeah. decisions. Too many bad years in a row, right? Maybe it can be tough. Can be it. Yep. Yep. You ever had that? Uh, not in a row. Um, now this year we we deal with the drought that we had this past. The whole region has had. Yeah. I mean, everybody's familiar with it. It, it affected us. We were probably production wise down thirty to forty percent. Mm. And and but the price is double, <laughs> and no one would have predicted that. So so, so it, it, it kind of is about the same as last year, sort of thing. One would think, but then we 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 also have insurance, crop insurance that we're just about everybody in the region mm. uh, utilized this year. Yeah, to to carry you through that poor year. Yeah. So um, you know, last year we received some some uh, COVID relief package payments from the government, right? Because of the you know the shutdowns and everything, and it yeah. affected our markets. So so there's a lot of there are a lot of different factors that go into it. It's not just calculate your yield times the price at the coast and there's there's a lot of different different sides of yeah. it so starting in the springtime i mean some of your acres already have winter wheat that's yay tall yeah 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 they're, and then the rest of it you come in with tillage equipment how many passes how many times do you go over it to like stir up the dirt and till it and get it ready to see so what we would call the primary tillage is is we're doing in the fall so last mm. year's crop is is wheat stubble Yep. and we're we're tilling the soil to cover up a majority of that wheat stubble to help break it down, get the microbes in the ground working to break that stubble and straw down and that residue mm-hmm. to uh, to break down so it's fit fit to work in the spring. Um, sometimes if you leave it, you can run into into problems. So we've done the primary tillage here in October, finish mm. up in November if you need to. Um, come spring, um, and we do probably fewer passes than they did 40 years ago we yeah with the tillage tools and the technology that we have um you know keep made it minimal ad- made advances with the palouse region that we deal here with all these hills i mean there's some really steep ground and it, it can erode and and we every day you see signs of that because the ridge tops the the good productive topsoil has has eroded off the top mm. top ridges and run downhill gravity right you know? So, so we got different soil types and, and so we try to limit the number of, of tillage passes, you know, within reason. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they'll, we'll do a, a spring herbicide application to kill the weeds and any volunteer will do a, a pass with the harrow to smooth things out. And then like spring wheat ground, we need to fertilize. So we'll, we'll pull a fertilizer machine to, to inject the, the fertilizer into the ground. Um, we, we take soil tests on all the fields to evaluate the nutrient level and then make a prescription application of the, of the fertilizer we need to raise the crop that year. So, so for spring wheat and spring barley, we fertilize for legumes. They typically don't need fertilizer. Sometimes we put a little, a little boost with, with the seed when we do seed, but Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, go from fertilizing. We'll make a pass with a cultivator to, to prep the soil just right for the next pass is, is seeding the crop with the mm. drill. So, um, <clears throat> and then it just sits and grows. Well, not always. What do you all have to do? So you'll, you'll seed now for spring wheat. You can leave it 
And then once it gets big enough, you watch for your weeds. Typically, you got to spray every year for for weeds. So you got to have the right stage of growth for the plant. Mm-hmm. Not let the weeds get too big, but not spray too soon, and then have more weeds come afterwards. So right. you work with agronomists for timing and and the proper chemistry of of herbicides. Um, sometimes you do need to watch for some diseases or pests, bugs. Um, sometimes they might need an application. Um, depending on the timing and the and the and the growing season, uh, for legumes you'll seed them, and sometimes you'll roll it with a roller. Um, we have some rocks, some basalt rocks in certain fields, and dirt clods. And with harvest, you're cutting right down on the ground with your header, so it it makes life a lot easier if you can roll it smooth to avoid crush those those dirt clods and and mm. push the rocks down below surface so you don't hit them with the header come harvest yep. so there's a couple couple little passes there it might might change things up but but uh, typically spring work four to five weeks at the at the longest depending yeah. on our how much rain you get during spring and shut you down and have to restart mm-hmm. and so so yeah typically april's the month that we do the majority of it and yep. get get the get the spring crops planted but then you don't irrigate that no, week, no irrigation. It's all dry here. land. Correct. 2020, we got done pretty normal year. You know, first of May, we received seven inches of nearly in my region seven inches of rain in May and June. Just phenomenal moisture. I mean, it was too wet. Mm-hmm. But then we had a cool summer and it carried, and we had phenomenal crops, record crops in 2020. Now this year, it was dry to start with in April. You know, we were we were limited on moisture, you know, which yeah. went great for being in the field and getting your crop in. But but come May and June, we got, I mean, maybe an inch. I mean, it the drought set in, and yeah. and you know, typically it's nice to get a good rain after you seed, and it gets get that moisture in the seed zone, and it and all the crop germinates. There there's there's crop that didn't even germinate because it was so dry, and wow. we didn't get enough rain to germinate it. Some of it came up three weeks later when we had an adequate rain shower and it, so we, we really really suffered here on on moisture this last summer i mean i always think of it as dry over here anyway but it was definitely a lot drier right. than usual yeah. so t- typically in our re- in our region we're 22 to 24 inches of moisture mm. that's more total moisture in a growing season and so september to august is, is our typical you know what we consider yep. a growing season so i i haven't looked at numbers but i bet i bet we're we were probably 17 or 18 you know and that that's that's substantially less yeah than what we what we typically have so so yeah it was, it was quite the extremes we go from a record year of of almost too much moisture to to a drought year and yeah. so it, it showed really showed but i've never had two rough two terrible crops in a row mm. so I've, i'm fortunate there yeah so then what's it like come harvest time you gotta be watching the plant and the grain and make sure that it's ready to go yeah you, you you always you know there's some people that they're out counting kernels and they're trying to estimate you know and i i it is what it is i can't change anything you know based on the weather so we'll just wait you know you watch for um <clears throat> typically harvest is in august and we'll we'll fire up have the combine and the trucks and the crew ready um come the end of july and then harvest will st- start in august on the winter wheat and so we're, we have to cut at a certain moisture so that the elevators won't receive the grain unless it's under 12 or 12.5% moisture. So that, that's usually what we're waiting for is, is, the, is that moisture content 
of the grain itself. That way it'll store properly once it's mm. brought to the bin and put in a bin and stored into the winter. So, so it, uh, it, it varies a little bit, but, uh, and, and with our topography, the hilltops and the, and the lowlands, it might be ready up on the hill and drier mm. and, and it might not be ready in the, in the bottom and the draws. So sometimes you, you harvest the, the field separate. I mean, it, mm. if, if you're really, some people wait till it's all ready and then, you're kind of giving away some weight because it might be 7% moisture on the ridge top and you're blending it with 12% down below. So, so some people get eager and excited yeah. that they'll, they'll patch around and they'll, and they'll, you know, this day and age with combines, a lot of them have moisture monitors in the combine. Mm, so that, you know what's happening as you're sen- doing it. Sensing it mm. and, and, you know, you can, you can see what you're getting in the bulk tank on your quality. So, wow. so is it all hands on deck then at that point? Well, it, it it's, it's it's pretty pressing. I mean, you want to be timely. We we deal with some 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 August rains that can really thwart our our harvest intentions, and and you get too much rain at harvest, and it causes sprout uh, sprout damage in the wheat, mm. which which is a quality issue that you can get uh, get penalized for with when you sell your go to sell your crop. Um, so yeah, usually you know you start out pretty aggressive, and if things go good and the crop's good and you kind of stick with it, you know. Ideally, you start first of August and you cut straight through until the end of August. You know, just progressing through. We usually we always start with our winter wheat first. It matures the earliest, and then typically the spring barley or the spring wheat will follow it. Ideally, and then uh, cut your legumes are typically last, depending on on how your pro- your fields lay and where they're located and that sort of thing. So, so I mean, you get it some. In a normal year, you know, 30, 35 days harvest. So ideally, you, you know, you can go straight through. Probably long days. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it depends. I, I upgraded a larger combine last year. So this was the first year I ran it. Five foot wider, 35 foot header instead of wow. 30. So I five foot more of header and, and a bigger machine so you can cut faster. So it made a big difference. I mean, I probably cut my, my harvest time down by four or five days just because the, the machine yeah. has the capacity to, to handle more acres in a day. So, mm. so typically, um, once harvest starts, you do your, your maintenance in the morning, fueling, greasing, checking the machine over in the trucks and make sure everything's up, up ready to go. And then I like to be harvesting by eight thirty, mm. nine o'clock in the morning, depending on the temperature you don't want to start too early yeah. and then a little dew or yeah, if, moisture on the right right grain. if there's too much dew the, the 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 grain is tough to thrash out and you don't do as well a job um and then you know wrap up about dark i mean there everything's equipped with lights you can cut into the dark but uh, if you don't have to it's you're more efficient during the daylight hours so so yeah about a, you know a 12 hour harvest day yeah and then there's always curveballs you know whether you got to make repairs run get parts or find someone to get parts for you. I mean, it, yep. it, it just depends on the day and the, and the, the timing. So you know, folks here in the Palouse are famous for your rolling Hills and, you know, all these different curved right? shapes to the field. How do you do that? It, I mean, it, and up on, you know, steep sides yeah. and, you know, it's not just like a square field and that's what I'm used to. Right. right. It, it, it takes so much more time to lay a field out to do it properly i mean we call it working on the contour so we're, mm-hmm. we're 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 working on a side hill to be to uh 
to not go up and down because mm-hmm. when you especially with doing tillage you can create erosion if mm. you work it up and down and you leave leave uh, little grooves or something and then you get a good hard rain it'll wash straight downhill and it picks up gravity picks up speed and it, it can create quite a bit of erosion so so laying out a field and and you know very few fields are square i mean whether you might have a square side where there's a property line mm-hmm. but then it might be right over the steepest part of the field and it <laughs> it can really you gotta you gotta know what you, be careful i mean every year there's there's combines that roll over mm. i mean it, it so it is dangerous to, yeah it, to do that side hill stuff i mean i think it was a lot worse back in the day when you had you know smaller machines less technology um this day and age most people have a, a leveling mach, leveling hillside machine so mm. the combine actually levels itself side to side the, the tires move and it keeps the machine level so it can do a more efficient job and better job of cleaning. Yeah. There there are some guys, and it's an, it's an expensive thing. I mean, seventy to $100,000 just to have this leveling machine. But That's but what it costs for the whole combine or just for the leveling just part? Just the leveling machine, and that's probably on the low side. You, you, wow. You, you talk the new, the, the new combines today are probably $800,000 for, for the a top-of-the-line machine, it, and, and I might even be low there. Then you throw in, that's not the header. That's without the... Yes, the cutting platform. Wow. So, so headers are 30 to 45 feet long. Mm-hmm. So you get a bigger machine, you need a bigger header to make it efficient. And so headers these days, in eight, I mean, 160000 for a header. So we're talking a million, a million dollars. If you just went out to the dealership and, and they had a machine on, brand new machine, you're talking a million dollars for a combine. Now it'll do a lot of work. Mm-hmm. But what if you're just starting though, and you don't have that kind of but, capital, and you yeah, can't even borrow that right. much money? So, how do you do? You get an old one or a small one, right. or how do you start? So I, I mean, I had an advantage. My father-in-law was farming, and I bought a majority or a good share of his equipment. So mm-hmm. I, I've been, I've harvested ten crops. So ten years ago, I bought one of his combines. So it was it was ten or eleven years old that year that I bought it. So I ran it for 10 years or nine years. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you, you start with older, cheaper equipment because the banker's not going to loan you something to go to start out and go buy a million yeah. dollar machine. Now, Work your way there. now a million dollar machine will cut a whole lot of acres in a day. So, yeah. so it does do a lot of work, but it's a big investment up front. And that's, yeah. that's the hard, that's a big decision to make. How did you learn all this stuff? Because, again, you're from the west side. We don't do <laughs> this kind of farming over yeah, no. in western Washington. No, uh, I I grew up working on my uncle's dairy farm, you know, starting out weekends cleaning calf pens and bucking hay bales and driving tractor, you know, small tractors. Um, and, you know, so I've always I've always been around agriculture, but uh, – and then getting into high school, working in the raspberry fields, the strawberry. I was not a good strawberry picker, so don't 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 ask me any questions about that. But your dad was not a farmer. No, no, my dad was in construction. He was in construction, but but I lived close to my uncle, and yeah. he he was a dairy farmer back in Whatcom County. So yeah, so uh, so yeah, I I got to do plenty of chores and help him out in the summer making hay and whatever else I was capable of. Did some. Milking cows in high school and, and in college, and I knew I didn't want to be in animal agriculture. 
Uh, I mean, it was a good paying job, and and yeah, there was always plenty of work. There's plenty of dairy farms back yeah. in Linden back then, so uh, I milked cows, and but uh, I knew I didn't want that seven days a week. Some people, that's their favorite part, is getting to work with animals and take well, care of animals. I'm not wired that way either. Th- th- those are blessed people. Uh, <laughs> they have not... a lot more patience than I do. <laughs> right, right, right. No, I didn't want to. I didn't want to deal with animals. So, so I've always leaned towards the crop production. So when I was in the in the high school working on the raspberry farm, um, and then in the college working on the raspberry, you know, working my way up, supervising harvest crews and people, you know, from from yeah. the beginnings, um, and then once I graduated high school, I decided to come to W Washington State University for for ag degree, and <clears throat> it wasn't clear cut. I I came over and I I started out animal science. You know, it was my freshman year, and I was like, "Yeah, I took a couple animal science classes." Like, well, no, let's let's go more this direction. I I, I graduated with an ag econ degree, so mm. economics. So yeah, so I took more crops. I took uh, technology. I took soils classes. Quite a variety of of ag ag classes. So, and that, at that time, you were working for my uncle, right? Yeah, back in high school, and then uh, my in first the- year of college, I worked for for Uncle Rick. So Rick Honkoop. Back at Delta Berry Farm on the corner of Birch Bay Linden Road and Bob Hall Road. So that was that was the raspberries and strawberries yeah, that you're talking right, about. Right, right. Yeah, he was good to me. I put in, oh, I think I started when I was 14 driving raspberry harvester on Northwood Road for him. That's so, just up the road from where I live now. Back, yeah. back, back in the day when, uh, you know, you had kids working for you and they couldn't work too many hours. I'd, I'd work the morning shift driving a raspberry harvester for rick and then i'd go work for raider berry farm mm. in the processing plant in the afternoon and evening so i, I was double dipping there for a while so <laughs> anyway it worked out and uh, so but yeah i you know i wasn't afraid of putting in long hours for raspberry harvest and it kind of carried over net to now being a, a wheat farmer here yeah. in the palouse what was it like working for my uncle rick what kind of a guy was he to work for i know he was kind of a Hammer down, get her done, yeah, kind of guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes you had a hard time keeping up. I mean, he was a wiry, scrappy dude. He, he could go, 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 and and yeah. Sometimes you're, you're, <laughs> you were scratching your head. Oh, well, maybe we better think about this a minute. You know, instead yeah. of just just going to full bore. So, but no, it was it was good. Uh, he was sort of the wild child of the family. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. The babies, babies of the families, kind of end up that way. I've, I've witnessed that personally. So, but no, it was good. He, I stuck with him, and and uh, he he entrusted me with more more uh, responsibility over the years, and and it worked out good. You know, with me being a college high school student and a college student, that uh, have a good job to come to come back yeah. to in the in the in the summer. <clears throat> I, it's cool to hear more about him because I, you know, I remember him, Mm -hmm. but he passed away when I was nine years old. Mm -hmm. I still remember that because it was right in the middle of berry harvest. Right, right, right in the middle of harvest. And he had a rare kind of cancer Yeah, and he fought it like nobody fought because he was just so ornery and tough. Several rounds with it. I mean, it, it, when it first came up and it kind of went away for a while and Things looked all right for a couple of years before it came back again. Yeah. So, but yeah, it was it was. Uh, you know, I grew up a lot that year that that ninety uh, two. Yeah. Because um, he he was he was in the hospital or wherever battling that, and yeah. like you said, middle harvest. And I I can still picture this uh, 
Lawrence, your grandpa Lawrence would come in and check on me or your, your dad, Randy would come down the road mm-hmm. and check, check on things, you know, cause they had, you know, they were a little older and had a, were adults. I was just a 19 year old kid <laughs> supervising two different fields and a couple, yeah. couple of machines. And, and Lawrence would check in and I would, it was, if you've worked raspberry harvest, you know what the peak is. Oh yeah. And when the peak hits, there's nothing you can do to catch up. You just, yeah. <laughs> you slave away. <laughs> the go, berries go, are ready go, to go. come off. Yeah. And we had some year, some, some days there, we had over 20 ton of yeah. production with two machines. Yeah. And, and I can just, Lawrence would come back and report and how Rick was doing, and, and he'd, he'd tell him those numbers, and Rick was just, he was... Spe- Over the moon. He was speechless. He, yeah. he, he didn't know what to, what to say. Yeah. Lawrence said it was just, his eyes would light up. Yeah. He'd never had a harvest like that, per, yeah, per, he, production-wise. He, before he passed, he was in the hospital for, what, at least a couple weeks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, it started out, he was at home, I think, getting some care and treatments, and then it... Yeah. yeah, I don't remember, recall all the details there. What was that like being on the farm the day that, I mean, we knew that he was really sick and wasn't going to make it the day before, and then he passed. I remember being on my dad's farm with my dad that day, just kind of in a daze. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't, you know, it was in the thick of it. So we were, you know, we I'd forgotten how many employees we had, a couple shifts of kids and, and drivers and truck drivers and yeah. just keeping things moving. Um what I do recall is, is, is his service and we shut down. I mean, that was, you know, in July unheard of shut, yeah. we, we shut down because it, you know, it was a thing to do and, yeah. and to get caught up, we, we pulled some old nighters. I mean, we had three shifts on, on the one field because, you know, 40 acres for one machine, it couldn't keep up. And <laughs> I remember taking the night shift and driving in the dark and <laughs> yeah. we, we, uh, we, we tried tried to stay on top of things so yeah and then you thought at that point like you said you had been you had done your first year of college yeah then my uncle passed away yeah that summer yeah and then that got you thinking yeah right? I, I saw the opportunity I mean I was thinking hey maybe I can make this work you know I I, I got along well with with Debbie Rick's wife and mm-hmm. and uh, and I kind of st- Chose, at that point, I chose to not go back to school to WSU and mm-hmm. and help take care of the farm until something was figured out. But I, yeah. I sat down with the banker and 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 sat down with the the co-op manager to to you know to look into lines of credit or or what, what you know. I was an e-, e you know done a lot of farm economics in high school, competed in FFA and stuff, so yeah. I understood that stuff, and so I knew I had to you know if I was gonna I had to have some some financial backing yeah. and, and looked into it so kind of scary for anybody but especially i mean you were 19 years old yeah. 20 years old at yeah. that point trying to decide do i take on the you know massive debt right. to right. get into full farming <laughs> right and i and i had been helped out enough that you know the, the raspberry industry ebb and flows so so it, you it, know it, you knew the roller coaster <laughs> of the market yeah. right right so you know i it was something i i looked into but you know hindsight you know, it may be, it, it was, it was a learning experience, but maybe yeah. not the right, the right opportunity. So, yeah. So I, then what happened after that? I, I took that year off and worked, worked at Corvan and, uh, and milked a few cows and, and for, for grandpa Ivan and, and, uh, so you, you milked, you, you milked relief for my other grandpa yeah, I did. on the other side. You're talking about working with my grandpa, helping with my uncle Rick, right? But now you're talking about my mom's yeah. side. You actually milked, yeah, and, yeah. and I, I own that barn now. 
I, I own that place. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. If you ever want to come back into that old flat <laughs> no, barn, no. it's still there. No, no. Maybe my, we could find a cow for I, you to I milk I think my, e- my knee's aching right now just talking about it. <laughs> yeah, so, imagine how so. bad both of my grandpa's <laughs> knees are aching from their 40 years yeah, each. No, of, no, it was a good opportunity and maximize my time away from school to, to earn, earn, earn some income and, and help pay for school and in the future. So, so, so I, I took that year off and I went yeah. back, I, I did go back to WSU uh, the following fall. Was that a hard decision to make? Like, ah, I'll go back to school. Like I should do that, but am I missing an opportunity? No, at that point, it, you know, it was like, uh, you know, you just, sometimes it takes a little growing up and you kind of ev- take a step back and evaluate the situation. So, yeah. So no, it wasn't too too difficult the dis- decision at that time. Yeah. So then you got your degree, and then I, what? I ag economics, and, and graduated in '96. And at that time, I was working summers and even Christmas break and Thanksgiving break. I'd come home. I was working for Enfield Farms back in mm-hmm. Linden on yeah on the summers with raspberry harvest and blueberry harvest and that sort of thing. So so uh, you know it was a good job and and a good experience and helped me pay for college. Yeah. And without any school debt by the time I was done. So things were good at that time. Um, in college, I met my wife. Uh, she was a University of Idaho student. Hmm. And I was WSU student, seven miles across the yeah. state line from each other. Yeah. And uh, she was a local girl here in the Palouse, uh, Potlatch, Idaho area. And so uh, that's how I got my introduction to the wheat wheat harvest yeah. here in the Palouse. Um, and it worked out. Once I got done, when I finished college, she graduated the same year, and we moved back to Linden. Uh, she lived in Bellingham. I lived in Linden for, for a year before we got married. Yeah. And uh, she got an advertising job out in Ferndale, for, and I, I worked started full-time for Enfield Farms right out of college. So, yeah. so I continued that work there just, just year-round. Yeah. Um, but after, at that point... We'd get done with raspberry harvest, and blueberries weren't as big a deal as they are now. Back yep. in the, in the late nineties, there they were were, but it didn't take near the manpower or the the, yep. the harvest crews to do blueberries. So, I'd take a couple weeks off, and I'd come to Idaho and help my father in law with with wheat harvest and and lentil harvest. So, and I would there after a few years. I mean, I was supervising multiple harvesters, two shifts of 14, 15 year old kids. <laughs> lots of lots of truck drivers and harvest drivers and you know you, this is back yeah in linden this, this yeah yeah back in linden so i would uh take two weeks off come to idaho and it was just my father-in-law and me just the two of us out in the rolling hills of the plues harvesting wheat and one would drive the combine the other one drive truck and it was just two of us and you got addicted. You <laughs> probably was, thought that was great. It, it's the best job in the world running a combine on these on these Palouse hills. So it it was just peace peace and quiet and and no people no employees to deal with. So now you still gonna have nerves of steel to be on some of those steep hills. Oh yes, I mean I can I can remember back back in those days. I I did some mowing in the barnyard with with the. 60 horse utility tractor and a yeah. seven foot mower and i was like you know i'm gonna leave that little hill for my father-in-law because it just didn't feel it felt a little tippy there and uh, i just did the, the flatter stuff but but i wouldn't hesitate a minute right now i mean just get used a, to after, it. after this much uh experience of being on the hills so. you ever seen something roll over on a side hill um 
not personally. I've I've seen pictures. I've I've heard I've heard stories. You know, usually it's a there's a mechanical error. Um, you know, whether whether an axle breaks or or the parking brake doesn't get set and, mm-hmm. and somebody gets out and it starts yeah. rolling. Um, I've never seen any any anything personally. Yeah. Um, the the scariest thing I've probably been around is 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 a harvest fire. Mm. And sometimes the combine has a mechanical issue or something. It's a spark. You get you get uh, some dust collected on the on the exhaust on mm. the muffler or some sort of the part of the, the exhaust manifold, and it flakes off. and And if the conditions are right, it it, it can start a fire and a field fire. And that's that's probably the 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 wor- most worrisome accident that could happen. So. So, so we, we, we keep an, a tillage tool or a water truck in the area. We have fire extinguishers on them, combines in the trucks. Yeah. Um, it's always handy, you know, have another set of eyes. So if you can keep the truck driver near you in the field or, or something to. Yeah, because if you to, can't see behind you while you're driving the combine, you don't know that yeah. maybe the stubble back there just right. caught fire. Right. So, so yeah, usually it just doesn't blare up, but flare up immediately, but it'll, it'll smolder and you, you might see the smoke before you see the flames. So. So the yeah, quicker I, you can put it out, the better. Right. Yeah. I, I've I've been involved in in a couple in my in my twenty plus year career yeah. operating combines. So, but I've mm. you know I've seen other I've helped out neighbors. You know, everybody's mm. if you see smoke at harvest, you're you're <laughs> calling you're calling around or you're you're trying to figure out where it's at to if you if you can assist you. you, you Everybody know, just you helps. S- you stop what you're doing and you go help. What if it's a neighbor you don't really like? <laughs> Uh, Probably doesn't matter at that point because no, it could spread to your place. No, right? It 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 could impact you. You know, we're we're farming side by side on property lines, so yeah, yeah. it could end up in your field just as easy as yeah. moving moving to someone else's. So so yeah, fire is probably the the scariest thing. Probably. So your father in law started teaching you the ropes, yeah. and how many years did you do that before you decided I'm moving to the east side? So I I. Uh, I helped him every harvest from even in college a couple times, you know, when I had some, some day weekend or something. Yeah. Um, so in the nineties. So yeah, we, we decided to move over here in 2004 mm-hmm. from, from Linden <clears throat> with a, a one-year-old and a three-year-old. And, and I actually started working for Wilbur Ellis company as a, as a fertile field agronomist. Mm. So a lo- local, local branch here and, and selling fertilizer and herbicides and, Mm-hmm. And uh, working working with the wheat growers, not just not right. just my father in law. So I would help I would help him out every chance I could, you know. Yeah. But uh, I was still, you know, had a paying job. Yeah. Working working locally. So when did you make the leap from that to being a farmer yourself? So that that would have been uh, I put in about eight and a half years at Wilbur Ellis, and and so I think I harvested my first crop in two thousand eleven. My, my own crop under my name so so 2011 so i've 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 got 10 10 10 crop years under my belt and it's and it's funny i've i've heard others say this you know you know you only get about typically you know if you started farming when you're 20 years old you only get about 40 or 45 mm-hmm. crops to to perfect it or or yeah. you know yeah because oppor- every time you're trying okay how can i do it differently op- opportunities this time? and i got yeah. being i got a late start and i'm already 10 years in you know it's 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 a challenge i mean it and it's um that's the fun part of it is what what can you do better to that you can control control i mean because most things you know the biggest thing is is the weather and the climate you can't control that so you do what you can do best with your decisions yeah 
to uh, whether it's choosing the variety, choosing the crop, how you how you manage your fields. Um, you know, you just do what you can to to do produce the best crop you can. So, do you love it? I I do. Um, it's it's been good. Um, and the big the biggest uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the word that on not honor, but uh, is when a neighbor offers you some a new field or something. Mm you know, where you've, you've maybe proven yourself and others have seen it and maybe they're ready to retire or, or a landlord is ready to change operators and they come to you to ask you to farm their ground. Because they take that much pride in that ground. Yes. It's they, not just whatever, hey, whoever's going to, you know, who's the highest bidder? Yeah, there's there's those landowners that, that are looking for the highest bidder, but mm-hmm. they're typically not the ones you want to deal with or, or that I would prefer to deal with. Now, yeah. You know, things change, and and people, all, everybody's is different or different generations. But, but yeah, that's when I've I've never. That's the when they come to you and ask you versus you. You know, maybe yeah. you do need more acres, and you're you're trying to come up with. That's that's the what makes you feel good. That especially the the former, the, you know, the retiring farmer or yeah. someone that's been doing it all their life. Yeah, that's 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 a good good feeling there. How has that been since you didn't grow up around this kind of farming here? Right. Did it? Did you feel like you kind of had to prove yourself to that well, crowd? Well, that's the tough part. And, you know, being it was my father-in-law, not my father, I didn't inherit it. I had I had to prove to him. And, yeah. and, and he, you know, he, he entrusted me. So, so, and I really, it was basically his recommendation uh, when, because w- he turned down, he turned down ground when I was over here working for Wilbur Ellis that yeah. he could have expanded and hired me, mm. but it wasn't the right, you know, at the time I was like, what are you passing that up for? You know, but mm-hmm. you know, he wasn't comfortable with it. So I, I couldn't yeah. tell him what to do, but he could, he, he got offered a couple guys that were retiring and, and knew that he did an excellent job at farming. So yeah, same thing there, mm-hmm. but location wise or timing, it just, you know, it wasn't the right timing. So, so when, when the opportunity didn't present itself, it was a good opportunity, and and you know he put in a good word for me and to uh, to ha- get that opportunity. So how long are you going to keep doing it? Oh, it's hard to say. I mean, <laughs> you're at the mercy of uh, of the landlords and and whatnot. Mm. But uh, you know, I got a couple kids in college and one in high school. I get <laughs> I I got to it uh, college tuition to pay for a few years. So yeah, yeah. No, it's. You know, I have that mentality. It's like, you know, if you enjoy it and you can, you can do it, you know, why stop? Yeah. So, so right now it's, you know, I'd say I'm in my prime, you know, as far as my experience and my age and my, my, uh, financial status, you know, what that sort of thing, you know, um, so keep it, keep it up. Um, my, my son has shown some interest. I mean, he's helped me when he can, he's got his driver's license now, so he's, he's itching to to help out and now yeah. i'm i i i hold the reins a little baby maybe a little too tight so <laughs> so because i enjoy it so much that you know I, yeah. sometimes there's not a whole lot a lot of equipment to operate but uh yeah but i've 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 had him in the tractor seat by himself and it's it's a it's a you know it take takes a little bit on my my uh confidence too yeah. To, yeah. That, that he's yeah. gonna be okay and be, be, be fine at doing it so Cut him loose yeah yeah, yeah. What does your family think of it? Think of you, you know, moving over to Eastern Washington, away from Western Washington. What was that like? What did your folks think? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, they were sad. Obviously, you know, you're taking the grandkids, and and yeah. they're 400 miles away now. So, but uh, um, they've they've still come over, and you know, different times. And you know, obviously, harvest is the is is the best time to come visit. You can ride in the combine and see the see the right the the amber waves of grain, yeah. and, and you know, just the scenic yeah. being a, a real scenic area over here. So, so yeah, it's you know, it's everybody adjusted, and it's been all right. So, yeah. You lost your dad a few years ago. Yeah. What did he think of the whole thing? Well, that was in 2016, so I was not farming. You know, I was just helping my father-in-law when I could on the weekends and yeah. whatnot. So, so that you know, there was never really my operation to show them and, and yeah. to get involved. They did come and visit, but uh, um, you know, he 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 had that quiet presence. He wasn't he wasn't a real vocal and and yeah. and, and cheerleader type personality so but no he he you know he, he i learned my work ethic from him and he saw that and that's that's what that's what he really appreciated i'm sure yeah he's proud of you yeah well thank you for chatting with us and sharing the whole story of how this all came to okay. be it's pretty cool yeah yeah when you get i mean it, it, this is a time when a lot of people are moving east honestly you you did it you know, 20 right. years earlier right but a lot of people are looking, oh, maybe move to eastern Washington, maybe move to Idaho. Right. And I know some of your ground is in Idaho. Right. Or a lot of your the your farming is in Idaho. Yeah. Right. And and I've seen that. I've I've got a, a field right next to me. I farm on three sides of it this year. And sixty acre field and the county let them divide it into four parcels and I could have four new houses right mm. next that I and sometimes it, it can be an issue and sometimes if they understand it, it, yeah. it can be a good a, a good situation. But that that uncertainty i mean i've and then the price of land is is just skyrocketed um mm, even out here yeah yeah the the it's it, it's kind why of why is that what's pushing it so part of it is this this drive to get out of urban centers i mean i've talked to people from portland that i want to move here because of all the chaos that's been down there um you hear this the stories of the californians moving to the boise area and yeah. it's just exploding down there well then the people that are down there want to move north and so they come to north idaho like chain reaction right it's 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 a do- domino effect um so there, it's a combination of everything you know this all Th- the- does that change anything for you though for farming what how does that put pressure on you well i mean it's it you know if you you introduce these people that aren't familiar with mm. the farming aspect i mean whether it's dust from from the tillage pass you're doing and it's blowing into their their yard or in the front of their house or it's the crop duster airplane flying over at 5 a.m because that's when the wind is calm and they need Mm -hmm. to get the get the crop sprayed um it's the trucks at harvest or or just just uh transporting equipment that 15 mile an hour combine you're trying to be safe and go 15 20 miles an hour down the highway and you have a string of traffic behind you people don't some people don't understand or don't want to have patience to wait a little be patient to, yeah. to to let the machine get to the field safely and then what, they, they can be on their way what about land prices does that affect yeah like the economics of right. what you're doing right yeah it's 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 inflated and mm. um and and what i would say right now it's it's above what is feasible mm. i mean in my perspective um there's getting the land that does come available a lot of it is being brought to it in an auction land auction mm. 
and there is some big real estate investment groups that that have come you know they're they're looking to diversify get out of the stock market and they mm-hmm. they have a portfolio of of farm ground mm-hmm. and they've they're driving up the prices and they'll they'll buy it all versus a parcel right and and then they're looking for their return on investment and so right. they 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 bid it give it to the highest bidder the farmer operator that'll pay the most most rent for it so so yeah i, I lease all my land partially because of that because land prices are are steep so as that value goes up and people are using it as an investment and there are lots of other dollars outside of just the farm world in it right then it makes it probably harder and harder to farm in washington state unless unless or or idaho or wherever this is unless you have that relationship i mean with the land maybe you're friends with the investment guy and so he offers it to you first Right. So you got to look at it both ways. I understand they want to yeah. get a return on their investment. It's just yeah. a matter of if it's realistic. So that's been going on for a while now. And we've seen some ramifications where, where big operations have had to downsize because it's not financially feasible. They expand, they get big, they're, they're traveling back and forth and they can't, they can't pay the bills. They got to downsize. Mm. It hasn't really had a huge cor- major correction, but y- We've seen some yeah. beginnings of that certain certain place certain locations and areas. So, what's the difference in uh, doing business between Washington and and Idaho? Uh, not a big difference. Um, you know, there you you hear of more regulations being introduced in in you know in Washington. Department of yeah. Ecology comes down. Um, you know, you feel more comfortable in Idaho because they're they're not pushing that environmental agenda. So mm. typically, you know, if you, you're not going to see the same regulations come down from the state legislature or what, or whatever organization, ecology mm-hmm. um, type of thing, you know, so that, so there's a, a re- more of a relaxed feeling in Idaho as far as, as far as that, that side of business wise. Um, and then, so it is getting in some ways harder to farm in Washington than Idaho. I, I, guess it depends what you're doing i can't speak from that because all my farm ground is in idaho so i I can't compare them exactly you know i can i I have friends and neighbors and i can talk to them but um so yeah there's potentially there it fortunately there's just been enough common sense at the last minute that some stuff hasn't (laughs) been in now now I, i would say um you know maybe our regulation or truck driving regulations are different in the two states so you gotta be you know, you got to weigh that, and there's there's some yeah. extra stuff to deal with there. But uh, but overall, I'm sh- yeah, I'm sure there's added expense if you're sp- specifically in Washington. So, but a lot of stuff to keep track of. Yeah, yeah, a that, lot of moving parts. I mean, that's what it it does help not having any full time employees, and you know, I, yeah. I do I I have some part time help, so that's can be a, a blessing and a curse because you're always hoping to find someone on a short-term basis, you know, for a few weeks a year or, or someone, you know, that, that can handle that or yeah. whatnot. I, I, I do as much family as I can. My, my son helps a little bit. My brother, Dan is, is living in the Colfax area. So he, he's helped me out a number of years driving truck on weekends. And, and, uh, you know, last year with COVID, he got, he got laid off for a period of time mm-hmm. and he, he, I put him in the tractor at spring work. He, there you go. He yeah. learned something new that year in 2020. So, so yeah, it, it, it helps out when you got family around that can that can assist you with with some of that. 
you know, short-term labor yeah. needs. So it's good. Well, thanks for growing good food and working with your family and supporting your community. I know you do a lot of stuff to do that. And thanks for sharing your whole story with us here. I'm glad you uh, present our stories the way you do and, and, and do an excellent job at it. So thank you, Dylan. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. These are the stories of the people who grow your food. 